This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, and Ali Theater's El Zocalo Advisory Committee welcome you to Houstonians Shaping the Nation, a Hispanic Heritage Month celebration of Houston Cultura and Nuestra Palabra Familia who are making national impacts. Tonight's opening ceremony, performed by Danza Azteca, Dashka Yolot, and Danza Chicawa. Buenas noches y bienvenidos. Esta historia que van a escuchar es una historia que guardamos los aztecas en nuestros corazones. Este es el antiguo relato de una larga peregrinación conservado por los mexicas como parte de su origen y tradición. Salieron de Chicomostoc en un largo caminar. Así fundaron la gran Tenochtitlan. Se los venimos a contar. Hoy es la Ciudad de México, en lo que era el lago de Texcoco. Huitzilopochtli, patrono de la guerra y del sol.
Hace mucho tiempo, los aztlanecas, o como quizá ustedes les hayan escuchado llamar los aztecas, vivían en un lugar llamado Aztlán, Chicomostoc. Las siete cuevas se llamaba aquel lugar. Xochimilcas, Chalcas, Tecpanecas, Colhuacas, Tlahuicas, Tlaxcaltecas y Aztecas Mexicas habitaban ese mítico lugar. Un día, un hombre escuchó un pajarillo. Ese pajarillo cantaba así, decía, ¡Tiwi! ¡Tiwi! Digamos que era un colibrí. Esa palabra tiwi en náhuatl quiere decir vámonos. El hombre quiso seguir al pajarillo, llamó a su mujer, llamaron a su vecino y así toda la comunidad fue agarrando camino. Todo el pueblo azteca se preparó para salir de Aztlán hacia el sur, donde se establecieron en un lejano lugar.
en el camino hacia el sur, peregrinaron, anduvieron mucho y largo. Su andar fue de muchos modos. Caminaban por colinas, praderas, lugares llenos de lodo. Muchos se fueron quedando a lo largo del camino. Dicen los que ahora saben de lenguas que en el norte hay unos que se llaman yutes. Pueblos, Comanches, en estados que ahora se llaman California, Utah, Nuevo México, Arizona. Siguieron avanzando y pasaron también por Sonora, Sinaloa, Nayarit, Jalisco. Y ahora esas tribus se llaman Lloris, Celtales, Huicholes, de muchos nombres. Llegaron hasta más al sur, cruzaron valles y montañas hasta que se asentaron en un lugar donde la profecía decía que encontrarían un águila parada en un nopal. Unos dicen que con serpiente, unos dicen que con tunas, en las garras. Unos dicen que las tunas de piedra eran el corazón del espíritu que buscaban. Cansados de peregrinar, los aztecas ya no sabían si algún día iban a ver la señal. Por fin, llegaron a un lugar donde había una gran laguna. Pararon a descansar y cuál no sería su sorpresa que al voltear al cielo, Vieron un águila dorada volar. El águila daba vueltas como que buscaba algo. Ese era el águila real, símbolo de la bandera mexicana.
Ashkan, kita suka macam ini sendiri. Insi wat lampa, tabus lampa caneke. Kita salko atli jaya, traso kamati ini pal nemawani, ini moyo koyoni, ini kse. Ashkan, kita suka macam ini sendiri. Ini pal nemawani, insi wat lampa caneke, insi petote kijaya. Nick Ome Ashkan, it lasso camachilis necky. In me clamp at your necky. Tescatlipoca yeyan. Lasso camati nipalemoguani. Nijay. Ashkan, titlaso kamachililis neki, intenso wiz na wake wiziloposhku yeyan, titlaso kamati palnemuwani, inignawi! Inmoyo koyani, kata tonatiu, tositsin mesli, titlaso kamati, Tlaso kamati to sa tlaso tlal nansin to natiu to nat nawatsin tlal nansin tlali kwatlike chalchetlike makwili mak. Y así, queridos amigos, termina esta historia narrada, una representación visual de la historia del origen de las siete tri tribus nahuatlacas que vinieron de Chicomostoc hasta llegar al Valle de México, que sería el imperio más grande hasta la llegada de los españoles. Tlazocamati, Oxepa, ojo. Alvaro Sarios is a Texican playwright and an alum of Nuestra Palabra Latino Writers Having Their Say. He's a graduate from Lamar High School and the University of Houston, and his plays have been performed in New York City, Mexico City, and all over the United States. He is a veteran of the U.S. Army and an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Thank you. This is a piece called The History of Mexicans in 10 Minutes. In the beginning, there were no Mexicans. Now, none whatsoever. Now, there were people who looked Mexican, like you and you and, okay, maybe you. 
Definitely not you. But they weren't Mexican because there weren't Mexicans because there were no Mexicans, no Mexicanos. It was a Republican's dream come true. <laughs> now there were Mayans, Ormex, Mixtecs, and Teotihuacanos, Coltecs, Incas, Aztecs, pero no Mexicanos. And during this historical time, there lived the baddest, most craziest pre-pre-Mexicans that ever existed, the Mexica, or commonly known as the Aztecs. Now the Mexica were known for their different things, their pyramids, their poetry, their heavy calendars, but they, what they will always be remembered for would like they, what they like to do on Friday nights, live human sacrifices. It is believed that the Mexica performed these sacrifices for religious reasons, and it's been said that they were extremely spiritual people that had over a thousand gods with unpronounceable names that needed appeasing every day. And everything was going just fine for the Mexica. They were happy, their gods were happy, even the people they sacrificed were happy. Then from the land of lips and light skin came Hernan Cortez and his band of buddies, Los Conquistadores. Viva España! Now Cortez and his men got off their boats and started checking out the area, and soon they realized they weren't alone. So now I'm Cortez, and I'm talking to a Mexica person. You little brown guy, are there any Mexicans here? No. Good, so we were walking around, checking things out, and we noticed you have some gold and silver here. Can we permanently borrow all of it? I just want to take it to España and show it to my friend King Charles. He likes shiny stuff. I promise we'll bring it back. Maybe. Vete. Funny you mentioned that. We kind of can't leave. I kind of burned all of our ships. I didn't want my men sailing away and leaving me here. Hey, what is all that stuff you got growing out there? Maíz, uh, frijoles de cacao, uh, chile. Wow. We don't have any of that stuff back home. You know what else we don't have back home? Fine looking brown women. You seem to have plenty of them around here. Would you mind if we borrow some of them? A guy can get pretty lonely after being on an old boat for a month at a time. And the Mexica said, no. Please, no. Cortez pulls out his sword. Give us your women now. Y los conquistadores? Las conquistaron! And in reality, the Mexica didn't give up that easily. I mean, they had weapons to protect themselves, but they didn't have sharp weapons. I mean, their weapons were only designed to knock people unconscious. How else were they supposed to have live humans for their sacrifices? But the main reason they couldn't defeat the conquistadores is because the Spanish had something the Mexica couldn't protect themselves from, smallpox. And as the Mexica empire fell, a new government arose, and along with it, the birth of a new race, mestizos, which loosely translates as Mexicans with bad hair. So now the mestizos ruled, the Spanish ruled, for a very long, long time. So now I'm a Spaniard and I've got my foot on the neck of a mestizo person. How many years have we been ruling you, mestizos? 300 years? Wow, that's a lot of years of discriminating, violating, and destroying. Is that why you pre-Mexicans are pissed off all the time? By the way, what's today's date? 16 de septiembre, 1810. Oh, September 16th, 1810. 
Just another boring day in no Mexican land. Thank you, man. I, I got my voice. I'm good. You know, you almost Mexicans don't realize how you are to be ruled by us. That totally threw me off. Uh, I don't do that. Now think about it. Why would you? Why would you do this if you have to take care of this whole land? What would you do if you have to take care of this land by yourself? And the mestizo said, "Ya verás, viva la Virgen de Guadalupe, muerte a los tiranos." Go back to Spain, you light-skinned, funny-talking ocean back. <laughs> Why are you guys kicking us out, right? I mean, we did rape your women and wipe out most of your ancestors and took most of your gold to the motherland. But it hasn't been all that bad, has it? We built churches for you and taught you a new language. And in that new language, the mestizo said, vete. And the Spanish said, no. And the mestizo said, vete. And the Spanish said, no, no, vete, no, no, vete. And this went on for 11 years. Fine, we're leaving. We know we're not wanted. But if you get invaded by somebody like Napoleon or Maximilian or privileged Americanos, don't come crying to us. No mames, wey, vete. <laughs> so after the Spanish left, the mestizos did what any brown person would do when placed in this situation. They threw a big-ass pachanga and invited every pre-Mexican in town. So now you can invite, imagine this big party of Mexicans and the mestizos are standing there. My fellow brown people, now that those filthy ocean backs are gone, we are in total control of this land, our land. Land that many generations of our families have been raised upon, fought wars upon, and ate frijoles and nopales on. And now we need a name for this place. And not just any name. We need a good name. One that will, a place where people will know that a place where all brown people can roam free. And someone says, Brazil? <laughs> no. El Paso? Let's save that one for someone else. What about the east side? Mexico, yeah, well, we'll, we'll call it Mexico. And we'll call ourselves Mexico people. No, we're Mexicanos. Yeah, somos Mexicanos. And one more thing, we'll have a flag with a cactus in the middle. And, and, and it'll have an eagle sitting on top of a cactus eating a snake. And, and like the ingredients of a delicious salsa, the flag will be jalapeno green, onion white, and tomate red. And then somebody pulls out a Mexican flag, like always. Like I bet you somebody in this crowd has one, right? So fast forward to the present, and we proudly stand before you as distant grandchildren of our Mexican forefathers. We may live under a different flag, but we have not forgotten the soil that nourished our roots for many generations. And when it's our turn to tell the story of our gente to our children and our children's children, we will sit them down and say, you're not going to believe this shit, but... In the beginning, there were no Mexicans. You come from a long line of people who fought to exist. Celebrate your rich brown skin and the history that flows through your veins. We don't cut out people's hearts anymore. Well, not some of us, right? <laughs> but we will sacrifice moons and suns without wives and hijas, husbands and hijos, in hopes that mañana will be better than yesterday. We want what everybody else wants, freedom, equality, and a big-ass bowl of menudo. <laughs> and like our antepasados, we'll fight for each one of those things. 
for those who are here and those yet to come. Thank you. Poet Lupe Mendez is a veteran alum of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, where he made his literary debut. He went on to become one of the co-founders of the Libra Traficante Caravan, and he is now the current Texas Poet Laureate. Buenas tardes. Uh, two poems. Uh, all the teachers in the house. Don Madre. All right. An oldie but a goodie. Uh, whoever has that phone, apague esa chinga. I teach. I write until the chalkboards become whiteboards, until textbooks become laptops, lockers become privileged, no thesis are dust but erasable markers, shiny things I close my eyes in front of. I hold my breath right before the first bell, and every morning I run the day, and I know. I teach because the money is a hot meal, nothing more. I teach because I can see myself and their faces desperate. I teach because they want to be here. I teach because they hate being here and there's no place else to go. I teach because I let them feel at home and sometimes the kids, they ask if they can spend the night in my classroom. I smile. I provide a cot for the ones that can't sleep at home. I'm a taxi service when it gets too late. I'm a Molotov when the state board gets local. I teach because the world is an A, B, C, D, F, G, H, J bubble life. I teach because I hated teachers and I am sick of hating them. I teach to be humble. I teach because they remember their fathers and call me Apa. I teach because of laughter. I teach because of tears. I teach because I recognize hearts, at least today. Today is the one thing I can control, so I will... Ice a few busted lips, glue a shoe sole, fix a spiral notebook, contain a seizure, collect all the love notes, correct the spelling, and then hand them back. Organize three games of kickball, soccer, and red light, green light, make the kids shake after a fair fight, dig in the closet after, after someone has had an accident, debate the kids on why not to say Bloody Mary five times in the bathroom, then have the teachable moment about why her and La Llorona are about sexism and why men are always lying when they make up haunted stories about our women. Make a rainbow and speak of magical refractions and sunlight and the kids, yeah, the goddamn kids will only hear me say magical blah, 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 grab refractions, blah, blah, sunlight. Use diploma while playing Uno or Loteria or Papers, Rock, Scissors. Introduce deodorant for the Fuchis. Provide at least four lunches plus the snacks. Repair all the sets of glasses. Burn all the paperwork. Oye. Write a midnight recommendation letter, defend a child with a, from a drunken parent, discuss the problem with borders and immigration before we play a game of Red Rover. Stop a bus with a single hand, control the weather with my imagination, bridge a nosebleed. Wish, then shake the shit out of that hooker mama when I need her Gustavo or Ruby or Kim or Gabriel or Lasandra or Lisette or Albion or Curtis or Maida or all of them in my math tutorials. Make all the kids live to read. Make all the kids live to read. Make all the kids live to read. Make all the kids live to read and then keep them alive when a gunman comes around. I hope I am enough. Convince eight pairs of parents that lantern from that lantern village that camping is good for their hijitos and combat a system that wants to swallow my kids whole. You see, I turn brick and mortar into heartbeat and voice, an open vowel, a dreaming consonant. 
every time I open my door. So tell me, while you're over there writing some other law that shadows me, that opines my vocation as villainy, please just tell me, cabron, what the hell do you do? Um, this is uh, a piece I wrote in the years that I served under Nuestra Palabra uh, and all the friends I made, uh, Tony included, Alvaro as well. Um, and this was my first published piece ever. Uh, it was a performance poem that I added five lines to and became a flash fiction piece. <laughs> Thanks. Um, what should run in the mind? Read this first at fast run. Don't start fights. Just end them quickly. Stand up for yourself a little. Mind your own business. Never touch the ball with your hands. Play fair. If you have a fist fight, buy the winner or the loser a trago. No name calling. Stop swearing so much that spit forms in the corners of your words. Remember you pray with that bocota of yours. Let all the people go first. Open doors for everyone. Pray to a God. Pray to the four winds. Plant something. Remember how to act in public. Smile. Don't stare at them with your mouth open. Don't stare at their chests. Work out maybe another half hour. Stop staring at their chest. Control the conversation. Learn how to dance a waltz. Keep up with the mileage in your car. Stop staring at everyone when you talk to them. Don't be cocky. Remember people's names, eat vegetables. Once in your life, work a dirty job. Don't mix light and dark liquors like your pendejo de tío. <laughs> Choose between the thing you love and the one you love for the rest of your life. Battle, try new foods. Dirty thoughts aren't dirty, cochino. Don't expect to kiss on the first date, cochino. Don't brag with your friends on poker night. Learn how to salsa, only pay poker once a month. Watch your spending, be humble, drive defensively. Don't be so defensive. Someone tiene la razón. Manual labor clears your head, do it often, study hard, get good sleep, take risks with a clear mind, show some quiet plight, call her back, remember you come from a cumbia, learn how to cook mojarras para tu tia Juana, write the thank you cards the day after graduation, I said the day after graduation, make new friends, don't sweat around people you want to impress, shave down, not up, burns less, read, write. Look smart, be dumb only at night. Don't get a fake ID. Well, if you're going to get a fake ID, get it from your cousin Enrique or Sanjay or Thimi or Terrence. Change your socks, read, call them back, call home, call them back. Don't let checks bounce, call them back. Write, run, stop using checks. Don't flirt by having drinks with them. Argue so that you learn from someone. Read, jodido. Don't stare at their legs all night. Don't whistle to get their attention. Offer assistance. Barbecue with carbon instead of a gas grill. It tastes better. Pay bills, even late. Dinner and dancing is just that. Don't suggest one-night stands. Let those happen. <laughs> if it does happen, make sure it's not a one-night stand every night. Know how to cook. If you get her pregnant, tell your father first. If you have a father. Listen, be able to fix things, run faster, struggle, take a moment and listen to a story from your grandfather. Let your mother know you are all right if you have a mother. Know your license number, wear deodorant, don't hit on their friends, learn a new language. If you have neither parent, rely on me, rely on your boy, rely on your girl. If you get the chance to spend the night with a pretty someone, exist in the words first, then the lips, then a kiss on the hips. Ooh. Only use your credit cards and never... Take it slow. Learn to take shots of tequila. Make sure the only tequila you drink is on Julio Perate. Be there on time. Admire the moonlight. Pay attention to time at the sound of the crash on the waves on the jetty. Sleep on the beach at least once in your life. Get your heart broken. Pick up the tab when somebody's had a great day. Pick up the tab when somebody's had an awful day. Learn to samba. Remember your friends when it gets busy. Be intimate, especially when you want to run away. Pray as much as your madre did and work as hard as your padre. You got that? No? 
Read it again, real slow. I'll wait. Please welcome to the stage Nuestra Palabra founder and executive director, Tony El Libro Traficante Diaz. He is a writer and activist originally from Chicago who moved to Houston to become the first Chicano to earn a Master of Fine Arts in creative writing from the University of Houston. In 1998, he founded Houston's first reading series for Latino writers, which sparked a movement for art, culture, and civil rights. Nuestra Palabra formed the foundation for the Libro Traficante Caravan, organized to defy and defeat Arizona's official's banning of Mexican-American studies. He will be reading from his new book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. It's wonderful to have you here. It's a joyous occasion, but I need to depress you just a little bit. But I promise you, you'll be fired up before you go. This is actually from the beginning of the first chapter. It's titled, Arizona Banned Our History. We decided to make more. During our lifetime, just a few years ago, Arizona right-wing Republican legislators banned Mexican-American studies. Whether or not you know this reveals a lot about American history. This is not ancient history. This is erased history about the erasure of our history. If you know about this, and like in the people in, the, in here defied the ban, because the people in here helped overturn that ban. So congratulations to all of you. We have to ask ourselves, if mainstream media, textbooks, and curriculums have allowed this direct attack on our community to fade, and if you've never heard about this, you need to ask yourself why. This oppression revealed to us that there are forces at work in this nation to sabotage our intellectual growth. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This happened. Many of us were sitting in the courtroom at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco when a federal judge said to the lawyer of the state of Arizona, if a curriculum is proven to help minority students succeed academically and you ban it, how is that not an example of discrimination? That sentence freed us from sentences. In that courtroom, we profoundly understood the power of self-determination and community cultural capital, and that there were people threatened by intellectual advancement. The Libro Traficantes were uniting with scholars and educators from Tucson and across the Southwest and the entire country, leading legal minds, all of us shaping national media, indie media, social media, and history. Yet, my first time visiting the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals a legal playing field of the courts, was to watch the state of Arizona attack teenage Chicanos for reading about their history and culture. Our crew mounted a public relations campaign that would rival anything that corporate world could sell us. Yet, no news outlets profoundly understood that this attack was clearly intended to destabilize our community cultural capital for generations. This attack revealed that there were forces that were threatened 
by our intellectual progress, which is part of our basic humanity. Yet corporate media insisted on reducing our plight to a discussion about the existence of a course or two. That's the system Libro Traficantes had to hack to accelerate our campaign. The rest of the cultural shrapnel we'd have to sift through in the wake of our success. If we did not win, we'd be occupied with the shrapnel forever. For that reason, at that time, the tip of the pyramid was overturning Arizona's ban of Mexican-American studies. We knew this would involve raising awareness and support so that the brilliant legal team assembled by Chicano civil rights lawyer Richard Martinez could overturn the racist law. Those were the goals the Libertapicantes needed to broadcast to our gente via social media, indie media, mainstream media, and one Mexican at a time. Policy change was the tip of the pyramid. Our community united across state lines to thwart the ban of our history and culture. We were expert at that because we'd been practicing those skills since 1998 through Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. We had accumulated the skill, and I want to applaud everybody who helped us get Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, off the ground. And now the good news. Yes, sorry, I had to take you there, because uh, I'm so happy that we can celebrate this. We can't take this for granted, because this can go away. There are folks that want to take it away, but there's also folks that want to help us. So right now, I want to start uplifting us, and I want to thank all of you for passing out flyers, reading your poems, donating time, energy, and believing in Nuestra Palabra going on 25 years next year. This is the beginning of our body all the way to next year, and we also have other friends. Tonight, you're going to hear from the BIPOC Arts Network Fund. We want to thank them for giving Nuestra Palabra a grant for $25,000. Nuestra Palabra became, thank you, thank you. Nuestra Palabra became a fiscal sponsor for groups like uh, Lupe Mendez's and Jasmine Mendez's group, Tintero Projects, which got a grant for $5,000 from Banff. Also, Danza Azteca Teoshukoto that performed tonight got a grant for $10,000, but I'm not done. I want to thank the Houston Endowment for giving Nuestra Palabra a grant for $250,000. We're also the fiscal sponsor for Tintero Projects. You saw Lupe Mendez. They're getting a grant from Houston Endowment for $100,000, también. And then Danza Azteca Toshiokoto will also be getting a grant for $100,000. On that note, I want to read one more essay. It's called Poetry Doesn't Make Money. Because it just did. Poetry doesn't make money. That sentence is intended to sentence our senses to sense. Yet we hear it all the time. I aim to write about cultural capital to defy sentences like this. Because here's the truth. Poetry might not create direct capital, but poetry creates a gold mine of cultural capital like you see here tonight, and our community thrives on it. We will not be kept from it, but our community needs to profoundly understand the power of cultural capital, and they must know that others actively attempt 
to make us relinquish our voice. At the most basic level, teachers, parents, and even editors tell potential poets and writers that poetry doesn't make money as if they were repeating a universal truth. Most folks might consider this a harmless statement. The harmful part is that it's a stereotype that has gained traction and is repeated more often than poems are probably read. Poetry does not make money makes a brilliant advertising campaign. The result is that our community is sentenced to reality where poetry doesn't matter because evidently we don't have enough money to enjoy it. At the very least, repeating poetry does not make money might persuade a young person not to read poetry, a college student to reject his or her dream of choosing the major in literature or humanities or an editor not to publish a collection of poems. Folks then assume that our community doesn't care about poetry or literature. All humans have the desire to relate their voices, their visions, their stories. All people want to. Poetry does not make money. Sentences the community to silence. Writer Dagoberto Gilb says, it's not accurate to call this invisibility. Two of his books were in the Mex-American Studies curriculum outlawed in Arizona. It is what Gloria Angels Duo calls facultad that transforms us and inspires us to pierce through this manufactured invisibility. Endowed with facultad, we're on the road to becoming cultural accelerators. Her book, Borderlands La Frontera, the New Mestiza, was also one of the books on the prohibited Mex-American Studies curriculum at the Tucson Unified School District. In it, she writes, la facultad is the capacity to see in surface phenomena the meaning of deeper realities, to see the deep structure below the surface. Mind-altering poetry and prose like you heard tonight reveal to us that what is missing, and then we write about what we see in our minds, and we dispel that myth that poetry does not pay because we are proof Poetry creates cultural capital. If we invest that cultural capital into our community, we are poised to accelerate it for the good of not just our community, but for humanity. I've seen this happen before my very eyes. In 1998, we founded Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say in the party hall of Chapultepec restaurant. Y'all remember that? <laughs> you remember those days? <laughs> At the time, People didn't quite say to me, poetry doesn't make money. Instead, they used a lot of euphemisms and synonyms. The worst thing I would hear, even from other Latinos, was that our community was just not interested in literature. Thank you. Let that sink in. In our own community, we deeply believed we did not possess the basic humanity to want to tell our story. That is profound damage. We would simply tell them they were welcome not to attend. But this train was moving and we kept looking for other cultural accelerators who were ready to unleash Aztec muses. To the outside world, we would hear that there were not enough Hispanic writers in Houston to sustain a series I just become the first Chicano to earn a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of Houston. 
I moved here just for that. This was shocking to me. I moved from Chicago. I always wondered why Houston had to import Mexicans from Chicago when being occupied Mexico, it had plenty of its own. Examining cultural capital peels the structural issues that explains this. MFA students are taught to leave to New York to starve as soon as they graduate to try and get an obscure novel published by a small New York press. I looked into that and ascertained that New York already had enough writers, actors, and hitmen. Instead, I decided to invest my educational capital into Houston's cultural capital. In graduate school, you're not supposed to leave the ivory tower unless it's for a reading of your novel in progress. I adhered to other habits. My instincts have always been to stay connected to my community. At first, I thought that meant only my family. However, I realized as early as high school that if I was going to navigate the halls of education, I was going to need community support. For that reason, I continued to make history during graduate school. I was the first to teach creative writing courses at places like the Chicano Family Center. You remember that place? Talento Bilingue de Houston. Remember that place? I also helped organize press conferences for our brothers and sisters from Central America seeking and being denied political asylum. For that reason, I knew that there wasn't just a need to share our voices, but a deep pool of talent. Sitting in those workshops like you all did, like those showcases in Nuestra Palabra, we were thrilled to hear people who resembled us tell our story on our terms for the first time. Everyone should experience that edifying moment. It's thrilling to be part of. We wanted to give more people a stage for that, and Houston wanted to be that stage. So when people told us there were not enough Latino writers in Houston to create a reading series... I told them they were wrong. I knew that if we ran out of writers, we'd just create more. And we would convene with founding members like you saw tonight for Nuestra Palabra, Russell Contreras, Abrazar Rios, Carolina Monsiváis, Brian Paras, Diana Lopez, and more and more and more. They've gone on to publish nationwide and change the world. When I think of the 2.6 million Latino students in Texas public schools right now, I picture 2.6 million poets and writers. Don't get scared. Even when they're all freed into their cultural capital, the number of poets and writers will probably stay the same percentage, but they'll have an army of readers who become doctors, lawyers, professors, accountants, politicians, board members, and on and on and on. If you don't believe me, you just need to refer to the research by Chicanas and Chicanos submitted as evidence in court to overturn that racist law in Arizona because we won at the end of the day. So, yeah, that's right. Let's applaud that. Let's applaud that. And back then, we were just Libra Taficantes in the alley. Today, we're hundreds of Libra Taficantes in the alley theater, verdad? is called mind-altering prose Somos protect the cultural capital live on the dividends 
banking on your interest as my hashtag trends. How do I make my coin? I coined the phrase, somos libre traficantes. I was born on the south side of Chicago with these broad shoulders and broader imagination. I could have dedicated my time to busting skulls or opening minds. Lucky for you, I want to do time behind books. It's ironic because my folks told me that going to school would keep me out of trouble. Little did they know that the small doses of mind-altering prose were simply starter books. I grew up to get into harder and harder stuff. Worse, I became a kingpin of contraband prose. I'm just evil in nature. I suppose my parents could see this in me all along. They tried to save me. They sent me to a Catholic school. But even the nuns, the brothers, and the priests couldn't change my evil ways, no matter how often they hit me. So no, reading Nathaniel Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown did not turn me into a young good brown man. Instead, I would turn all quiet on the Western Front into all chilling on the West Side. I turned Macbeth into MC Beth. Thank you. I couldn't stop myself. No matter how much I was punished, there was no boundary to my imagination. I was always capable of the unimaginable. I respected no limits. I had to get out of Chicago for my own good. Back when I was a kid and a punk would ask me why I was reading a book on the corner, I'd reply, it's this or beat your ass. I will beat you with the book. I came to Houston to check out their literary cartels and to get my papers in MFA, which stands for Mighty Fine Aztec. Thank you. I'm the first Chicano to get an MFA here. Of course, it made no sense to me that I'd be the first Chicano to become a Mighty Fine Aztec in Tejatzlan. The sense that makes is nonsense. Texas is occupied Mexico. Being from Chicago, I can smell a racket a mile away. I wanted in on the action, so I started a gang. In 1998, I started an outfit called NP. Our alias for the outside world was Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. We were running the streets from day one. We had a crew of 200 capturing imagination, stealing hearts, and breaking literary rules right and left. By 2002, we were out of control, going from monthly mitotes to larger and larger joints. We put on a mega, not a mega, event. Drawing 30,000 people to the George Arbonne Convention Center, attracting celebrity authors like George Lopez and Jorge Ramos in limousines at our disposals. All the big dogs saw was money flying around. They saw capital being made. That's no big deal. You can sell anything. What I saw was our cultural capital building and building and building. All the other players could fight for their cuts of the capital. I knew we were monopolizing the real power. We were cultivating our community's cultural capital right under everyone's noses. And the outside world barely understood it. That meant we could just keep cranking out more and more mighty fine Aztecs on our terms, our way, who'd become cultural accelerators. But that wasn't enough. We needed more and more and more.
there under the streetlights in the alley of the convention center, running our hands over the literary gold we were trucking across state lines that our people were consuming in massive doses on the streets of Houston. I knew what we looked like. And instead of being ashamed, it made me more flagrant. And one of the vatos asked me, Oye, Tony, if the police roll up on us here in the alley, in the dark, with these packages, and ask us what we're doing here so late, what do we say? This time I said, we tell them, somos libro traficantes. And we became bigger and bigger and more and more flagrant. We took over the airways, broadcasting Nuestra Palabra at 100,000 watts on 90.1 FM KPFT. We took over social media while it was coming of age. We were on TV, conventional media. Our addiction to cultural capital knew no bounds. Of course, there were people watching who wanted to put us in check, but they couldn't. Not yet. We didn't know that there were mighty fine Aztecs in Tucson, Arizona, who were running cultural capital factors of their own on different fronts and at different scales, and they were about to be attacked. Our destinies would soon be directly linked. We've told you before about Arizona's band of Mexican American studies, so you know how we launched the 2012 Libre Traficante Caravan to smuggle the books back into Tucson that were banned. But now you need to know the larger picture. The far-right Arizona Republicans who attacked our cultural capital were flagrant too. They accused our community's cultural capital of promoting the overthrow of the government. I know language rackets. They wanted America to think we try to change the world violently because at the time it was hard to imagine us as intellectuals. What was really happening was that some politicians were scared of young Chicanas and Chicanos cracking the spines of books instead of each other's spines. They know how to control gang members, but they don't know how to control cultural accelerators. So this ain't a mystery novel. I'm going to ruin the ending. Mexican-Americans have directly experienced the power of cultural capital by two potent examples. In 2017, y'all overturned the banning of Mexican-American studies in Arizona. In 2018, Chicanos and Chicanos advocated and succeeded in getting Mexican-American studies endorsed statewide by the Texas State Board of Education. But the book bands are back again. So you ready? I've got a message for Texas State Rep Schwartz, who put together a list of 800 books that he wanted banned. If you dare to put my name or my book on that list, if you thought I was mad before, if you put the tip of the pyramid on that list, va a haber bronca. Thank you very much. Long live freedom of speech. Russell Contreras is an alum of Nuestra Palabra Latino Writers Having Their Say and a graduate of Eisenhower High School and the University of Houston. He earned a Master's of Fine Arts from Columbia University, and he is a national race and justice reporter for Axios News. goes according to the formal schedule, John J. Herrera will forever remember this evening as a calamity. The attorney organized speeches, drafted public 
acknowledgments of visitors from more than 800 miles away, and he found a Mexican band to play boleros. But on November 21st, 1963, the 53-year-old had no interest in the expected. At any moment, President John F. Kennedy and First Lady Jackie might walk onto the Crystal Ballroom here at Houston's Rice Hotel. Herrera needed to escort them to the stage. And this visit isn't even part of the first couple's official itinerary. The first couple had received more than a thousand invitations for the two hour break between arriving at Houston's Rice Hotel and a planned 9 p.m. dinner. Those invitations came from wealthy donors and various fractions of the Democratic Party. Of those invitations, the White House chose Herrera's event, a banquet of the League of United Latin American Citizens, then the nation's largest Mexican-American civil rights organization. On one condition, Herrera and organizers could not publicize the visit. No newspaper advertisements, no Spanish language radio spots, just word of mouth. The president had convinced his skeptical wife to go on this non-political trip in the Lone Star State where conservative and liberal Democrats fought publicly. And despite the recent death of the couple's third child, a premature son they named Patrick, she went. Officially, Herrera's event is a gala honoring a Texas state director of LULAC. Unknown to the White House, activists had hastily organized the gathering just in case the president would drop by and stay high. If the event occurs as hope, it would be a major turning point for the storied civil rights organization. Founded in 1929 by Mexican-American World War I veterans, LULAC had functioned as the nation's major group fighting discrimination against Latinos in the American Southwest. It fought against lynchings, filed lawsuits to end school segregation in California and Texas, and organized voting drives in Latino communities. The group had yet to capture the same nationwide attention as the NAACP, but it had garnered notice and by 1963 landed a sizable amount of respect from white political leaders trying to survive close elections. How long will they stay? Herrera asked Ken O'Donnell, a Kennedy aide. What about Jackie? Can you prevail her to say something in Spanish? Like other civil rights leaders, Herrera saw news clippings of Jackie Kennedy addressing crowds in Mexico and Latin America. And he often reminded activists she spoke in Spanish in the first televised commercial during the 1960 campaign. However, speaking Spanish to a crowd of Mexican-Americans live in the US who, if they could afford to, had to pay a poll tax just to vote and had to fight to go to certain restaurants, just like African-Americans. John, O'Donnell responded, how long they stay and what they do will be up to you. Take it from there. For days, Herrera and his fellow Mexican-American civil rights activists quietly urged friends, associates, even frenemies, to come to the Rice Hotel for the special banquet. The President of the United States will drop by and say hi, Herrera told everybody. Come see history. Right, they said. Sure he will, Menso. The skeptical was warned, 
warned it. In 1963, Mexican-Americans were among the poorest ethnic group in the United States. And the population of Houston was no exception. Although this growing city boasted a sizable and expanded and expanding Mexican-American middle class, the Houston Chronicle in 1958 wrote a series that found the population had higher rates of tuberculosis, a poor diet, lower wages, and inadequate housing. Here, even the dogs look sick and hungry and defeated, the Houston Chronicle wrote about one Mexican-American neighborhood. Let me read that shit again. Here, even the dogs look sick and hungry and defeated. The Houston Chronicle wrote about one Mexican-American neighborhood. So you have the idea of a U.S. president, even JFK, addressing a Latino association at a scala seemed far-fetched. The population just had started to draw attention, they said, and no one can remember any president ever speaking to a Latino group. Nine years before, Hedera himself stood in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, challenging a Texas law that barred Mexican-Americans as jurors in some counties. His team had to answer questions from confused Supreme Court justices about who these people actually were. Are you talking about American citizens? Do they speak English? Oh, you're talking about those greasers down there, said Justice Felix Frankfurt. That's actual quote. Unlike the poverty and injustice injustice endured by African-Americans, the plight of Mexican-Americans rarely penetrated the national media. Their high rates of poverty were unknown outside of the American Southwest, parts of the Midwest and Spanish Harlem. The population with historic ties to the nations since before the country's founding remained invisible. Since the president planned to stop in Houston, he might want to drop by and thank members of the Viva Kennedy Clubs of Texas, Hedera said. I wish to urge you that to do everything, I will do everything possible to have President Kennedy visit the Lulac State Director's Ball at Crystal at the Crystal Barroom of Rice Hotel, Hereta wrote the wrote the White House. We can win Texas. However, to do it to do it again, the Viva Kennedy Clubs must be reorganized. The Secret Service confirmed to Haleda's law office two weeks before the gala, the president and his wife would stop by. They called off the visit three times. Knowing O'Donnell was a Massachusetts man, Hereda pulled out the distance card. Look, we've got people coming from 800 miles away, he said. El Paso. The visit was back on. Because the other invitations extended to the president for the two-hour break between his arrival and his scheduled Dinner, the Kennedy staff didn't want to insult anybody with the fragile Texas coalition. Don't worry, Hedetta said. We're not the ones you have to worry about. An army of Latino organizers started the word of mouth campaign to tell people President Kennedy would stop by LULAC. Unlike other events, no radio broadcast in Spanish were released. There were no public service announcements. Official invitations said nothing. News of the visit spread across the community as people in their informal network started making phone calls, one-on-one conversations, just like they did with protests and boycott. The challenge was convincing skeptics. 
Mike Herrera, John Herrera's son, who had worked in Washington, D.C. as a Capitol Police with the future Senator Harry Reid, and as a staffer for Lyndon Johnson, also faced doubts of cynics. When you mention the possibility of Kennedy visiting, people wrote something solid, something organizers couldn't give. But I'll tell you, if you're not here, you're going to miss something big, Herrera told doubters, and I just let it go. Thank you. The BIPOC Arts Network and Fund was created to provide resources and networks that support the vibrant Black, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Middle Eastern, and other communities of color of Greater Houston in fully displaying their power, values, and traditions. Please welcome BAMP Project Director Sixto Wagon. Thank you all for uh, having me here and allowing me to be part of the celebration of community cultural capital. It's an incredible moment to recognize uh, the connections, the relationships that words, sharing of words, music, dance, and ideas happens. The BIPOC Arts Network and Fund launched just over a year ago, and it was an idea in order to bring philanthropy, arts organizations, artists, and community leaders to, together. We chose to make transformational investments in the arts and culture organizations and artists who serve and celebrate our communities of color in Greater Houston. I'm grateful to the Houston Endowment, Ford Foundation, Kinder Foundation, Powell Foundation, Cullen Foundation, and the Brown Foundation, who chose to invest over $12 million into the new ways of doing something in this city. They made a commitment to work with, listen to, and celebrate the culture bearers, the culture workers, the organizations, the artists who serve and support their communities of color, the artists who make Houston the rich, vibrant and significant city that we choose to live in. I'm also grateful for the people who helped shape this initiative um, and who dedicated their experience and knowledge and passion to build differently. People like the steering committee and accountability and advisory committee and panelists like Tony Diaz, Frances Valdez and Adad Marrano. These leaders who stepped into a place of possibility, a place that allowed, that grounded Banff with values, experience and history. It's exciting to celebrate tonight with a number of the Banff grantees. Um, for the first round, we gave $2 million out to organizations and the Artists Collective. It was a moment of crisis that made investments in organizations and collectives who were already doing great work, um, whose commitments to our Hispanic, Latinx, Black, Asian, Indigenous, and Middle Eastern populations already showed up in festivals, in dance, in art, in, in spaces where we can come together, celebrate, mourn, plan, and do our stories. Banff recognized that it was not our place in order to define what was significant art to our communities. It was our place to listen. And through the proposals, we heard and we found out what we need to celebrate in our communities. And that is what we will continue to do. We continue to build with and for our communities. And in fact, we encourage you in order to go onto HoustonBANF.org in order to nominate yourself in order to be part of the panel. The BIPOC Arts Network and Fund uh, is a five-year initiative. It was born in a moment of crisis. It is my hope that our work and with you, we can actually build a community of sharing, of caring, and support. 
that events like tonight allow us to recognize what we have already accomplished and the work that still needs to be done. Thank you, and uh, we are excited to resource the community that will build a city, that will allow our BIPOC communities to flourish, and the city that deserves all of our work. Thank you so much. Please welcome Alma, Advocates of a Latino Museum of Culture and Visual Arts and Archive Complex in Houston, Harris County. Buenas noches, Houston! We at ALMA operate under the assumption that we are Houston. We are the voices, the dancers, the dreamers. We are the writers, the poets. We are the textile makers. We are the colors. We are the food makers. We are the taste makers. Are we not? We are Houston. And we are ALMA. And who is ALMA? We are your volunteers. We are the ones doing the heavy lift right now. We are the ones making sure that at a high level of excellence, that we can set forth a motion for your voices to be heard, our voices. I'm Geraldine Interiano Wise, and I am the ALMA board chair, but I have uh, board members in the audience who are watching this moment, this moment when we come together and begin to understand our own power. This power comes from inside each one of us. We are the past, the present, and the future. We are complex, but we're worth understanding. We are strong, but we need to connect because together we can do this better. Who here thinks that Latinos need a, their own home for their culture. Who here? You're asking for a lot. Because when we show up in Houston with our own home for you, for your grandchildren, for your grandparents, for the new generations, it's going to be excellent. It will not be a mediocre anything because our voices have been left out for way too long. So we're going to show up with excellence. How do we do this? You can't really put this on an ALMA board. You do understand. We need your help. Yes? Yes. So how can you help, you might ask? Well, I have perfect few first steps for each one of you. Number one, there are people in the audience who have uh, collected for us and put together our new ALMA Latino calendar of arts and culture for the city of Houston. This is a momentous step to connecting because connected, we can show up at, with the numbers that say the story. So one thing you can do is go to our website, alma.org, and look for the Latino arts and culture. Share it. Share it in your social media. Share it with your friends and family. Populate it. It's all digital. We're living in a digital world. So let's do this. Let's connect digitally and, uh, and follow it. But most importantly, I can tell you, again, about the numbers. When Alma asks you to come out, come out. 
when we're putting all this culture about you, from you, for you, come out, support it. This is how we're going to do it. Because for some reason, I think most of you probably feel the same way I do, we have to keep fighting for, for that place. I have a fight in me. Do any of you have it? Let's do this together. As an artist, I can tell you, we are the dreamers. I encourage all of you I, with this message to go seek excellence. Go seek education. Tell your children. Tell your friends. Let's show up not just as numbers, as excellence. Let us all be the representative of our culture. This culture that is so rich and so intertwined. We're from here and from there, right? I'm from here, but I'm from El Salvador. And we're, we're, we're complicated. But if we show up excellent, and if we are able to build this together for this city, it will be our gift to the city. You know that Houston has forever been trying to find out what is their ethos? What describes Houston? Nobody can really tell. Mexican food? Is that how we're going to do this? Uh, that's how we've been doing this. But that's reductive. That's, it's not that I don't love it. It's reductive because we're so much more than that. And we have so much more to offer. So when we show up with the house of our culture, it'll be for everyone. It will be an institution for the future. It will be sustainable. It will be an, a place for education and for enjoyment. So I leave you here with one thought. You are Houston. You are Alma. Tonight's mariachi entertainment will be performed by Kira Delilah Martinez and middle schooler Alan Aguilar, who tied for first at the Mariachi Vargas Vocal Competition in San Antonio. Yo sé bien que estoy afuera, pero el día en que yo me muera, de que tendrás que llorar. Llorar y llorar. Después me dijo un arriero que no hay que llegar primero, pero hay que saber llegar. Con primero y sincero, lo hago siempre lo que quiero, y palabra No tengo trono ni reina, ni nadie que me comprenda. Camino, enseñó que mi destino era rodar y rodar. Rodar y rodar, rodar y rodar. Después me dijo un arriero que no hay que llegar primero, pero hay que saber llegar. 
hago siempre lo que quiero y mi palabra es la ley. Muchas gracias. Ya me canso de llorar y no amanecer. Ya no sé si maldeciste o por tengo miedo de buscarte y de encontrarte ¿Dónde me aseguran mis amigos que te vas? Hay momentos en que quisiera Mejor rajarme y arrancarme a los clavos de mi Pero mis ojos se mueren
Baltimore Rodriguez is the Alley Theater Manager of Community Partnerships and leads the Alley's El Zocalo program to celebrate National Hispanic Heritage Month every year. Well, let's give a round of applause to the dancers, the mariachi, and the speakers. Amigos, it's so exciting to have you here this evening. I want to take the opportunity to thank the Alley staff, the Alley production team, our Alley leadership, and specifically the Alley education and community engagement team, and the Nuestra Palabra team, and in especial ustedes, each and every one of you, for making this event possible. This is a historic event and we're gonna to plan to make one of these events or produce one of these events once a year to highlight our wonderful people, nuestra gente, in our community. 